Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As years come in and years go out, I tottered towards the tomb. Still caring less and less about who goes to bed with whom. So said the English writer Dorothy L. Sayers. I'm Philippa Gregory, and my new book, Normal Women, looks at nine centuries of women's history in England, from the Norman Conquest in 1066 till the present day. I'm interested not in the famous heroines that we all know, but the women we don't know, everyday lives of normal women. Today, I'm with Caitlin and Leah, who share their marriage and parenting with more than 9 million followers on TikTok. Also here is Professor Laura Gowing of King's College London, who teaches women's history and queer history. Together, we'll discuss Normal Women Love Women. Behind her back, she's gentleman Jack, a Yorkshire lady of renown. Never so fine, more toe the line, speak her name, gentleman frown. She had them all, the fairer sex fell under a spell Dapper and bright, she held them tight Handsome man seduced them well Gentleman Jack, oh gentleman Jack Watch your back, you're under attack Her husbands are coming, you better start running For nobody likes a Jack the Lass Jack the Lass, Jack the Lass Centuries before love between men was named as homosexuality The Latin word lesbia was used for women who loved women written in the margins of a manuscript from the 2nd century, next to a description of two women marrying in an early church wedding. Considering the ongoing controversy there is about same-sex couples marrying in the Church of England, it's so ironic that the first record of the word lesbia is about two women marrying in the early church, and that was, of course the Roman Catholic Church. Do we even use the word lesbian now? Is it a fashionable word, Laura? I feel like it comes in and out of fashion. Like it's got, it's always been quite an awkward word that is hard to use to claim one's identity with. It has too many consonants in. It's got the wrong syllabus. It's easily mixed up with many other words, which can be convenient as well. But my sense is at the moment, that actually younger women are quite interested in talking about lesbian history and naming that as lesbian history and particularly thinking back to the lesbian politics of the 1980s, 1970s of the 1990s. So it comes in and out, I think. Caitlin and Leah. <laughs> I do agree that it can be an awkward... I don't know why. It's just the word lesbian, a lot of people tend to maybe say gay instead. I don't, I don't know why, even I ourselves. I feel like people don't like to maybe label themselves they prefer to kind of be more of an umbrella term mm. rather than saying I'm definitely this or I'm definitely that I feel like people like to just be, yeah. be more like they maybe they're not sure themselves and they don't want to kind of stick themselves to one one phrase whereas or, they're not sure oh I feel like we're in a society now where does it really matter what you label yourself as like as long as you're a good person you can love whoever you want like I feel like 
on social media now I'm seeing a lot where people are like I don't want to label myself why should I why do why do I have to have a label why can't I just be Leah and I love who I love the reason that nobody used a label or declared for centuries who goes to bed with whom was that while sex between men, named as sodomy, was thought to disrupt an army, a court, a school or a university, intimacy between women made no difference to the ruling of a country or keeping the peace. Women weren't even allowed to attend universities till the 20th century. So intimacy between women was never named as a crime in law and never described in law. It was only church law, not civil law, which banned lesbian acts in convents and nunneries because love affairs between nuns disrupted discipline. In the 7th century, Theodore, Archbishop of Canterbury, published a penitential, a list of possible sins and their appropriate punishment. A woman who practices vice with another woman should be given a penance for three years. It sounds like a severe punishment, but actually a penance for three years was a lesser penance than for a wife committing adultery with someone else's husband. In the 8th century, Pope Constantine V was a little more specific. Any woman in holy orders who engaged in intimacy with another should be put on a diet of bread and water the punishment to be increased to 40 days if one woman rode another. Caitlin and Leah, you've made a social media career out of your love for each other and your life together. Did you ever struggle with the sense that there was anything wrong about this, that there was any connection to the historical sense of sin? Not, for me, not really. I think my worry was just at the time um, how my family would be. I wasn't so worried about history or, or like outer circles. I was just worried about my family. Whereas, to be honest, my family were brought up Catholic Irish. So I think that they were probably brought up with the mindset that, not the mindset, but I'd say they were probably taught by the church that, you know, homosexuality is a sin. So I feel like that did impact my my thought process, but thankfully they were very open and very accepting of my sexuality, which was really helpful. Yeah, both our families we were very lucky. Very, very lucky. But absolutely, ask a Roman Catholic and you will get a sense of sin somewhere in there, even yeah. today. Yeah. Laura, do you think historically women were inhibited by the idea of all sex being a sin and in particular lesbian sex being a sin? Not really, no. I have to say, I think there is so much potential in the social lives and the domestic lives of women in the past for female intimacy. And there's so much ambiguity around what is sin and what isn't. But that leaves a lot of potential open. It is true that women are prosecuted for having sex with other women on the continent, but seemingly not in England. So there's quite differing interpretations through the medieval period of what sodomy is and whether or not it can involve women and lots of interest in certain places at certain points at times of stress it's one of the things that gets raised a sort of political crisis so are you saying it's a bit i mean i hesitate to use the word witch hunt because i know then we go off on witches but it's a bit in the sense that when there's political stress or anxiety in a society that people look at women's behavior much more critically sometimes yes there's been some interesting 
work on late medieval Flanders, which indicates that prosecutions of women for sex with each other start to happen when women are working outside the home a lot, and there's maybe some economic pressures as well. Some women seemed to escape any idea of shame or sin. There were female troubadours writing love songs to other women, like this 13th-century Troiberitz Bieres de Romance, who may have loved women passionately and poetically. Lovely woman, whom joy and noble speech uplift and merit, to you my stanzas go. For in you are gaiety and happiness and all good things one could ask of a woman. When the highly regarded theologian and mother superior Hildegard of Bingen in 1098-1179 encouraged her intense feelings for her assistant Ricardus, this was seen as a problem of favouritism, damaging the discipline of the convent. It wasn't punished as a sin, nor prosecuted as a crime, but the two women were separated and Ricardus died only 28 years old. Hildegard wrote to her brother in October 1152, saying that she called Ricardus her daughter, and the love she had for her was divine. I call her both daughter and mother, because I cherished her with a divine love. God favoured her so greatly that worldly desire had no power to embrace her, for she always fought against it. Even though she was like a flower in her beauty and loveliness in the symphony of this world, Although the world loved her physical beauty and her worldly wisdom while she was still alive, my soul has the greatest confidence in her salvation. For God loved her more. Therefore, he was unwilling to give his beloved to a heartless lover, that is, to the world. Nobody knows now if Ricardus and Hildegard were physically intimate, nor how and Hildegard's description of Ricardus as without sin and virginal probably suggests that they were not. And though intimacy between women was banned, it's not made clear what actually was forbidden. As historians, we're naturally curious about whether women in history had what we would call sex with each other at all. And so, I mean, you get to this stupid question, but what actually do we mean by lesbianism? Laura, do you think of it as a sexual preference or a physical act, or is it an emotional and spiritual commitment? Or is it a total rejection of men, so that you could be a celibate virgin lesbian? What do we want to imagine as a lesbian history? The feminist historian Judith Bennett came up with a wonderful term, lesbian-like, for thinking about lesbian behaviours, acts in the past. And one of the things that term does is to elucidate the way that Really, people are thinking about acts rather than identities in the past. It's not helpful for us to think in terms of identities generally, in the, particularly in the pre-industrial, in the, in the pre-modern period. But we can think about what acts might be perceived as something like lesbian. But it also helps us to think about the orientation of women in terms of their social and their emotional and their economic lives. And not to say that we're looking for sex between women in the past, but we're looking for relations between women and valuing those as a subject of history, which otherwise tend to get somewhat elided. Can I circle you back to the acts versus identities things? When you say acts, you don't mean necessarily sexual acts. You mean like the decision to live together or to form communities together or to make lives together, or even like 
as so many women who lived together did, make each other their heir, name them as their sole partner in the will. That That's acts. And identities is saying that this is what I am. There's a huge spectrum of acts which we might want to consider under the general rubric of lesbian or lesbian-like. And some of those might be acts of sex, but some of those might also be acts of social and economic commitment, like making wills or sharing houses together or even not getting married. The medieval poem Eid at Olive told of a princess fleeing from her father's court dressed as a man and was married while she was still in this disguise to a princess. The ballad specifically says that the princess was satisfied with her wedding night. When the king learned that his handsome young son-in-law was actually a girl, he summoned her to have a bath with him so he could see for himself. So he had a bath prepared in the paved hall. He entered it and asked for Eid. When she came in, the king commanded her, Disrobe and do not delay. It would please me for you to come bathe with me. She answered, frightened, Noble Sir King, said Eid of the shapely body, please excuse me from this. The king answered, You will remove all your clothes. If what I was told is true, I will have both of you burned at the stake. Eid trembled and Olive gasped. On her knees, she begged for mercy from God. The king summoned all his barons and related the whole matter in front of them. Weeping, he cried out to them, Lords, he said, what counsel will you offer me? Have them burned, they all shouted. Then while Eid was shaking with fear, a light came down from the sky. It was an angel whom God had sent down. The angel said to Oton, Peace, Jesus, king in majesty, asks you to bathe and let it be. For I am telling you in truth that you have a good night in the young man Ide. God sent him and given him out of kindness all that makes a man. This morning she was a woman, but now he is a man in the flesh. For God has power and might over everything. Here's a heroine falling in love with a woman, marrying her, and receiving a blessing from God. The heroine is turned into a biological man to satisfy the king. But I think part of the point of the story is that the two young women are lovers, and they choose each other, and that even when threatened with death, they want to stay together, and they're happy. Do you think... I mean, it's so interesting that in the medieval world, a woman preferring a woman as a lover is seen as a blessing. But I do feel like it seems like a blessing yeah. like for us, for sure. Like we just are in love and we just are very happy with our lives. So I feel like that's a blessing to find somebody that you love. I, actually, watching yeah. the two of you on TikTok and YouTube, you're so much in synchronicity with each other. It's like watching mm -hmm. a pair of birds fly together. You know, there's this, there's this <laughs> oh. lovely sympathy between the two of you. I mean, you finish each other's sentences. Laura, how typical is a poem like this for the time, a poem which describes women loving another woman as a blessing, as a very positive thing? It's unusual, but it's not completely unknown, these representations of relations between women. And there's a way it, it functions in all sorts of levels, doesn't it? Medieval poetry talks at a level of metaphor as well as actuality. And we don't really need to know in which way it's talking. What we need to know is that this is a possibility, there is a language, there is a literature, an oral culture even, that is circulating in which these ideas are 
voiced however much they're meant to represent something that might really happen. And it also calls on a medical um, and popular medical understanding of sexual differences quite fragile and changeable. Um, you know, God can reach down and change things, which in itself adds interesting queer potential. So there's a way some of these kind of sort of texts are, I think, thinking about ideas that are very modern. Caitlin and Leah, what do you feel when you hear this history? I mean, some of it's very brutal and some of it's, I think, quite encouraging. And some of it's, of course, as history always is, quite funny. How do you feel when you hear it? I find it very shocking, all the awful things. Um, I find it a mixture. I do find it like very shocking what they were saying, what you were saying about like the way different people think and the way people used to think about um, lesbians and... And the punishments. And the punishments that they used to be. But also some of the positive stuff was interesting as well. We're kind of moving through history here. So we get to the Stuarts and the Stuart monarchs of England from the probably homosexual James I till the last Stuart, Queen Anne, were famous for their promiscuous and permissive courts where women's passionate, lover-like friendships really flourished. Passionate love poetry was passed between the ladies-in-waiting in the court of the future James II. Francis Apsley told the young Princess Anne that she felt... More of love than any woman can for woman, and more love than ever the constantest lover had for his mistress. When Sarah, Duchess of Marlborough, was leaving London, the future Queen Anne begged her not to go. In mere pity and compassion to poor me, who you say you love. And to come back at once. Oh, come to me tomorrow as soon as you can, that I may cleave myself to you. Some historians claim that these women were fully sexually active with each other and call this lesbianism. Some historians say that the women were speaking in the accepted language of the time, which seems lover-like to us, but to them was a passionate commitment that they named sentimental friendship. The tradition of sentimental friendship goes on into the Victorian period. Passionate and spiritual relationships between women expressed physically in walking arm in arm, hugging, kissing, and perhaps even sharing a bed for choice. But it probably shouldn't be called lesbianism. Laura, you're a historian of sexuality. Do you ever have the feeling, as I did when I was writing Normal Women, of being a little bit of a peeping Tom, wondering what women are doing when they're alone together and wondering if this is lesbianism with a capital L or not? It was a badge that we used to wear in the 1980s saying, why assume I'm heterosexual? If we pose that question of history, it opens up a lot more evidence to us. So rather than assuming that everybody in the past is heterosexual. We can assume that there's all sorts of possibilities. We don't need to know whether women are having what we might term sexual acts with each other. We, we don't ask whether men and women who are married to each other generally are having sex in, in the past. Laura, I'm thinking that we need to assume that there is sexual diversity in the past as well as the present. It's not looking for lesbianism so much as starting with the assumption that there is sexual diversity in every society, including the past. So there's some really fascinating letters from the 19th century of women, working class women, as well as women of higher status, 
writing explicit letters to each other, which makes it clear that they saw their relationship as erotic and it might involve um, contact with their breasts, it might involve genital sex. They don't have a name for an identity necessarily, but even the concept of what sex, what erotic contact is, is different and is specific to individual people. People's visibility and what they were prepared to say about themselves comes and goes through time. In the 18th century, a writer, Mary de la Riviere Manley, wrote a comedy satire of real-life high-society women who, she suggested, were enjoying sexual pleasure with each other and trying to exclude men. The Lady L and her daughters make four of the cabal. They have taken a little lodging about 12 furlongs from Angela, in a place obscure and pleasant, with a magazine of good wine and necessary conveniences, chambers of repose, a tolerable garden, and the country in prospect. They wear away the indulgent happy hours according to their own taste. Their coaches and people, of whom they always take as few with them as possible, are left away to the convenient distance of a field in length, an easy walk to their bower of bliss. The day and hour of their rendezvous is appointed beforehand. They meet, they caress, they swear inviolable secrecy and amity. These are clearly women sexually active with each other, and they are anti-men trying to persuade other women from marrying and talking scandal about women unlucky enough to be seduced by a man. But Manly with one eye on the laws against slander, is careful not to say what her women lovers actually do. Alas, what can they do? Censorers must carry their imaginations a much greater length than I am able to do mine. The great defence of women loving women is that they're not unfaithful to their husbands, not even corrupted or dishonoured by sexual experience. Once sex becomes defined as vaginal penetration with a penis, anything other than that is automatically defined as not sex and so innocent. But what adventures! Good heaven! None that could in reality wound her chastity. Her virtue sacred to her lord, and the marriage bed was preserved inviolable. For what could reflect back upon it with any prejudice in the little liberty she took with her own sex? This early historical view that intimacy between women does not count as infidelity, or really amount to anything at all, as Revere Manley says, little liberties, it's a sort of odd misogyny, isn't it? As if what women do doesn't matter or doesn't somehow count, as if sex without a penis is not even sex at all. De La Riviere Manley's account is very resonant of the complexities of 18th century sexuality and of women's lives in which there's an increasing idea of the private sphere being associated with women, and then what might be going on in that private secret world. But I think there's plenty of other discourses going on at the same time that do say that sex between women matters and that it, that it is a risk and that it, and that it is corrupting. Because it was always um, one of the things we, we've learned from the history of sexuality over the last 20, 30 years is there's a lot more talk about sex between women and it's a lot more visible 
um, and love between women than historians used to think. And we're only getting a little glimpse of it from these few texts that survive. I found all of that very interesting. A lot of the stuff that you were saying about sex and what they deem as what is lesbian sex and what isn't lesbian sex, that they would say that if it, if somebody wasn't penetrated by a penis, it wasn't sex. And how you could still, I, I kind of completely, although I, I'm not a historian, I feel like that's very wrong to think because I feel like you can have a relationship and sex shouldn't be the most important thing. And the definition of sex, I feel like it's much broader than that. One of the things that interests me about that piece that we read from De La Rivia Manley is that she's suggesting that what's created is a sort of a, an anti-men group and a world, they're making a little world without men. And I wondered what you th felt, you two felt, that if you take men out of the equation of your domestic lives and your working life, does the world change to you? Does it look different? I don't think we have a life without men in it because as like our manager is a man. My dad's very much involved in our life. He's a man. Mm. We've got our son. Yeah, I would say so. The men in our lives are definitely on an equal footing with us. It's not to do with hating men. It's no. just a sexual preference. Yeah, or a romantic preference. In a sense, you step over the boundaries of private and public life because you're your career is based upon sharing your private life, which puts it into the public domain. Do you, did you have any rules for yourself about what you would not say? Or did you find that they evolved as you went along? We have a boundary. We won't cross the boundary. So for example, we have our son. And obviously, we're aware that we've, we're so lucky to have all these followers, but we can't see these followers. So we've made a decision not to show our son's face, not to share his middle name, just because obviously he doesn't have the opportunity or understand to say yes or no. So we do have um, boundaries put in place with mm. our social media. But I do feel like they've evolved over time, mm. like with our relationship, what we would share and what we don't share. Like we yeah. try not to share anything that's... We share personal things, but only things that we kind of agree on sharing. And feel comfortable. And feel with. comfortable sharing and knowing that people are going to be talking about it if we do share it. But I mean, over time, we have got a lot more, saying that, but over time, we have got a lot more comfortable on social media. I mean, I remember when we first even was in a relationship, before social media, we would be scared to even hold hands mm -hmm. in public. And now, obviously, we're on social media showing our relationships. So it has changed. It's definitely changed, not only on social media, but in our real lives, too. In the 19th century, the visibility of women loving women was occasional. And some authors really reveled in being able to simultaneously know and at the same time protest their innocence. Whenever two ladies live too much together has a Greek name now, and it's called Sapphism. So said wide-eyed Hester Thrale, pretending to know nothing about anything, though she was writing in the 19th century, two centuries after a reigning queen, Queen Anne, had been outed as a lesbian. "'Tis my scourge to think better both of the world and of all the individuals in it than they deserve. That house of Miss Rathbones is now supposed to have been but a cage of unclean birds living in a sinful celibate. Mercy on us!' Hester Thrale, a writer who manages to know and not know, something which is sometimes visible and sometimes invisible. It can sometimes look as if women loving women 
appears to become visible and then disappears and gets um, repressed. And to a certain extent, culture does reflect that. But um, Hester Thrale also condemns another woman for being over fond of women in a criminal way. And there's clearly, she's she's calling on a lot of knowledge. So I think that dynamic between secrecy and publicity and repression and not knowing like what do we know and what don't we know is a, a continuing dynamic. After the break, we look at a woman who kept her desires secret for a century. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Philippa Gregory. Welcome back to Normal Women, Love Women. With me today is historian Laura Gowing and Caitlin and Leah, TikTok stars who share their married life and parenting with millions of followers. This signature tune from folk duo Ohuli and Tiddo to Gentleman Jack, the story of Anne Lister, a Yorkshire heiress who knew herself to prefer women as sexual partners. Behind her back, she's Gentleman Jack, a Yorkshire lady of renown. Never so fine, won't toe the line, speak her name, Gentleman Frown. But shipped it all, she had them all, the fairer sex fell under a spell. Dapper and bright, she held them tight, handsome man seduced them well. Anne Lister wrote her diaries in code so that no one could know of her feelings or her activity. And then her diaries are decoded, and now she's probably the most well-known lesbian in modern history. Laura, do you have any sense that we should respect the privacy of the past? The question of whether the past deserves privacy is a really complicated one, and I think Anne Lister is a really good example here. If somebody hadn't violated the secrecy of her documents, which she did leave behind in great length and decoded her secret code, we would have no idea that she was not only having sex with women, but thinking really articulately and explicitly about what am I doing, um, what is pleasure, what is happening, who is doing what. And that is really valuable. So there certainly is room for a history that is explicitly about sex and sexual acts as well. It's in, in some senses, these questions are down to the ethos of individual historians of what kind of history they want to write. 
This is from Anne Lister's diary, her time in France when she was flirting with the widow. Anne is leading the woman on. She says to her, I went to the utmost extent of friendship, but this was enough. I should like to be instructed in the other between two women and would learn when I could, but it would be of no use to me. I had no inclination, could not imagine what good it could do, nor could she, and thought therefore there could be no harm in it. Oh no, said I slightly, they can do no harm. She gives me to understand she would live with me, and is sure I could love very deeply. She believed me though, that I know nothing about it, and is persuaded of what she might have suspected, that I have had no connection with women. But she is decidedly making love to me. I tell her I am more childish than she is, more fond of nonsense after reading, etc. Like to relax in an evening, should like to have a person always at my elbow to share my bedroom, and even bed, and to go as far as friendship can go, but this is enough. In Anne Lister's diary, she describes what she does for sexual pleasure with her woman partners, but of course that doesn't tell us what other women are doing. And that's how things have mostly remained. What women did in the past when they loved other women remains obscure, never described in a court, as there was no law against it, not described by the early church fathers, to whom it was a marginal disciplinary issue. And it was a sniggering joke, but no clear definition in the scandal sheets. The only reason we consider sentimental friendship between women as what's been called lesbian-like behaviour is because LGBTQ plus historians have gone back and looked for lesbians in the history, which rarely mentions them and never says what they're actually doing. And is that the proper use of the historical record at all? Is it not anachronistic to go back? History cannot avoid being anachronistic. One of the things we're seeing at, at the moment is the use of the um, history of sex in the past by many different people. We can all see really different kinds of our current identities in, in the past. And any beleaguered identity, any beleaguered position in, in the present needs its past. Anne Lister was really interested in um, meeting the ladies of Langoflin because they were f- famous and they were, good, they were a good model for her and she knew about them. Yeah, the ladies of Langochlan were a couple who were famously devoted and who ran from their own homes to set up house together. And she also looked back to the past and thought about women in the past who she assumed had had, had sex. Ever. We can see people looking for lesbian history and for gay history all through history. I mean, Caitlin and Leah, in, you've chosen to marry each other, so you've clearly made this an act uh, which also kind of identifies you. Do you have a sense of your what you're doing as a historic act? Um, I feel like we just did it for ourselves rather than for mm. to be on record as a couple, I think. I think we just kind of thought of it as a way of like committing to each other and it being our kind of show of love to everyone else as well, rather than it like thinking of it being in history mm. as an act. Yeah. Did you always know that you would, were right for each other? To be honest, we both actually did not realise that we liked girls until we were in our late teens. And it wasn't really until we met each other that we realised properly that we liked girls as well. So, um, But when we did meet each other, we definitely knew that we were like the ones for each other. It was kind of an instant connection, which was lovely. In the early 20th century, there was a hardening of attitudes to women loving women. 
1921, the House of Commons held a debate what to do about lesbians. The first is the death sentence. That has been tried in old times and, though drastic, it does do what is required, that is, stamp them out. The second is to look upon them, frankly, as lunatics and lock them up for the rest of their lives. That is a very satisfactory way also. Gets rid of them. The third way is to leave them entirely alone, not notice them, not advertise them. That is the method that has been adopted in England for many hundred years. This is Lieutenant Colonel Moore Brabazon, Conservative MP in 1921, begging the House of Commons not to criminalise lesbianism in a new law because he believed that women did not know about lesbianism and that making it a crime and describing it in law would bring it to their attention and might inspire women to try it. After the early 1900s, the new profession of sexologists talked openly about same-sex relationships and intimacies. Firstly, men's sexuality with men was discussed and such men called inverts, then this definition was expanded to include women who preferred their own sex. Estimates of invert women varied wildly from the Lord Chancellor's certainty that 999 women in a 1,000 had never heard of such a thing, to Sir Ernest Wilde's belief that no week passes that some unfortunate girl does not confess such a relationship to a nerve specialist, treating the breakdown which was a natural destination of a woman who loved another woman. But there was a growing awareness of women who preferred the company of their own sex, an awareness usually created by the men who were trying to deny their freedoms. In 1918, the dancer and actress Maud Allen sued Conservative MP Noel Pemberton Billing for saying that she was part of the cult of the clitoris, a lesbian and also a spy for Germany. Amazingly, she did not win her case of libel because the jury agreed that since she knew what was meant by the word clitoris, she must be a lesbian. That was not the only thing about her. She was also an artistic dancer, moving in permissive and bohemian circles. Summing up her claim that she had been slandered, the judge noted that the costume Alan wore for her performance as Salome in the disgraced Oscar Wilde's play was, in fact, worse than nothing. Unsurprisingly, in this climate so hostile to Oscar Wilde and to experimental art and freedom, she lost her case and was disgraced. After the Second World War, when she served not as a German spy, but as a volunteer Red Cross driver, Alan retired to the States and worked as a draftswoman at McDonald Aviation. Laura, what do you think causes this rise in women's sexual openness and then the really repressive challenge from men? Is what we're seeing here a rise in women's sexual openness or a cultural moment in which more attention is being paid to these kinds of um, expression? Sexology characterises women as inverts and pathologises sex between women, but it also encourages, for example, the telling of case stories and narratives which give women who wonder what their gender is and what their sex is and what their sexual relationships mean a way of talking about it. So the language of sexology brings the question of does sex mean identity into the public sphere? So that's what's happening as a kind of push towards drawing 
identity out of sexual acts. And it's really about making rules about what is heterosexual and what fits in that and what needs to be regulated out of it. Strike up the band. In Brighton, a crack drill platoon of the ATS, British Women's Auxiliary, exhibit fancy maneuvers, parade steps learned as a diversion from their regular duties. Now, the commanding voice of Sergeant Priscilla. The conscription of women into all women units in the Second World War brought women together and love affairs were mostly ignored. Letitia Fairfield, a senior medical officer in the Auxiliary Territorial Service, explained to her fellow elite officers that bed-sharing was normal for working-class women and nothing for them to worry about. Some units expelled women who were caught together in the same bed, but it was generally understood in both the Women's Auxiliary Air Force and the Auxiliary Transport Service that only relationships that disrupted discipline must be investigated. Violette Trafusis Forbes explained how to approach an airwoman or officer involved in a lesbian relationship. We should point out to her that her behaviour is that of a schoolgirl and that these sentimental attachments are not what we expect from airwomen, who must necessarily always set a good example to others. That unless she can behave herself as a sensible adult, we consider she will have a detrimental effect on discipline generally. We would have to dispense with her services. A pair of lovers at RAF Upward were accused of being lesbians after their letters were read by their commanding officer in 1941. In view of the fact that the writers of both letters are obviously in a highly temperamental and peculiar state of mind, and are miserable if parted for a few hours at a time, leads me to suppose that their work is unlikely to be as efficient as it would otherwise be. Since these two airwomen appear to be unable to behave like grown-up people who belong to a fine service, and that their childish conduct cannot be overlooked any longer, they must be separated. But according to these experts, bed-sharing was not lesbianism, attachment was not lesbianism, love letters, poetry and kissing was not lesbianism, and since the lawyers understood sexual intercourse as meaning only penile penetration, then by definition, women loving women were not having sex. And we have to remember that a lot of women who loved each other deeply and lived together and even shared a bed together still claimed that they had a friendship, not a sexual attraction. Vera Britton and Winifred Holtby lived together even when Vera Britton was married and they were clear and almost certainly truthful that they were not sexual partners but deeply loving friends. The historian Lillian Fademan points out that many women who identify as lesbians have no sexual relationship at all. She quotes one writer. I no longer believe that sex is an overpowering drive. This kind of sexuality, the kind that takes over your life, must be exposed as part of the patriarchy that feeds it. It's extraordinarily liberating to me to think that all the poking around in someone else's business that historians of women's sexuality have done, the Was Jane Austen a Lesbian headline, might actually be completely redundant. It may be that women denied they were having sex 
not because they were ashamed or modest, but because what they were doing they understood to be something other than sex. It's forms of love. It's not necessarily sexual intimacy. Laura, women campaigning for gay rights was a phenomenon of the late 80s. Do you think this time is gone? Do you have any sense that the battle has been won? I think many of the battles that we've been talking about have been won, but we're also going to see um, new fronts of activism and battles which we can't predict what those are going to be now, but we might think about certainly around migration and battles that have been going on in Italy over the rights of lesbians to be both cited as mothers of their children. Those are hugely significant and um, quite desperate battles for people involved in them. But the world of social media at least means, as Caitlin and Leah are saying, it's almost impossible for somebody not to know about the rest of the world and to be to think, I'm the only person that feels like that. And that just seems an incredible move, doesn't it? Are teens today more accepting? Do you think your generation and people younger than you are much more open to this? I would say they definitely are, yeah, especially with social media. I feel like it's kind of opened up a new world of thinking and hopefully, yeah, hopefully, I I definitely do think people are more open and accepting. Do you think young people are still facing homophobia? I would say definitely in schools. I think there's not enough education at all. Although things have definitely improved. Mm. I'm sure even at the moment, sex education in schools, it's only still heterosexual to sex that's taught from what from my knowledge I'm sure that's what yeah I've heard so I feel like there's so much more education that could be done in schools and I do think that it depends on how you're brought up so some families might be brought up where they're telling their children that it's wrong and then they're going into schools and maybe showing that to people who are of the LGBTQ plus community saying that maybe it's wrong there's like a lot more that needs to be done and that depends on the education yeah like that. I think there needs to be education and more discussion at school mm. even just open discussion mm. we just pray that when our children are old enough to go to school it will be a lot more accepted and he won't feel like oh am I different because I've got two mums Laura one of the confounding issues for talking about LGBTQ issues in schools is the long history of section 28 which made it illegal to represent lesbian or gay relationships as family relationships in local authority settings. And even though that's now been abolished, it's left a long legacy behind it, which means that schools and teachers can still be really uncomfortable with it. And here's a journalist reporting for an ITN news report. In the 80s, campaigners marched against clause, later Section 28. It prevented local authorities actively promoting homosexuality, effectively banning discussion in the classroom. My teacher said to me, we knew what was happening to you. We knew what you were going through and we couldn't do anything. It's been very hard to make it possible to talk about LGBTQ issues in schools, although it does seem to be getting more included in sex education. But it's been really, it's really interesting seeing schools from a parent's point of view as well. I think you're absolutely right to be optimistic going forwards that ultimately what you're doing is parenting and the more you're present and there doing that 
parenting, then you more the more you you spread the image of what you're doing and you expand people's knowledge. Of course, you don't want to be expanding people's knowledge all the time, but things have moved on so fast and so far in terms of lesbian families and gay families being in, in the public eye and being accepted and understood in schools. And of course, in the present, we're actually making history, which future historians are going to look back at. So a couple like you, Caitlin and Leah, you had a hello spread on the run up to your wedding, on the preparations for your wedding day. So there's you're literally in a document now, which future historians could research. Do you have any sense at all of the fact that you are making history? I feel like we just did it for ourselves rather than for mm. to be on record as a couple, I think. I think we just kind of thought of it as a way of like committing to each other and it being our kind of show of love to everyone else as well, rather than it like thinking of it being in history. Mm. It's quite crazy really to think of it like that because I feel like when we do these like Hello Magazine and stuff, I don't feel like we really think that we are kind of creating a part of history which is really amazing to actually think. Yeah, definitely. Do you think of yourselves ever as sort of heiresses to this long history of women's struggle to be seen and women's struggle to be free? I wouldn't say so. I think we just see ourselves as hope for people that may think that they are women-loving women. And I just feel like hopefully we're a beacon of hope that you can have a family, you can... Get married. Get married. Yeah, and live happily together. Yeah, I hope we're just a beacon of hope for people. A beacon of hope. Caitlin and Leah, Laura Gowing, thank you very much. In the next episode, normal women are underpaid. Normal wage-earning women, every day, every week, work two shifts. One, where they're paid on average three-quarters of the male wage and one at home where they're paid nothing. I'll be joined by the historian Jane Humphreys and Edwina Dunn, data scientist and founder of The Female Lead, and together we'll be looking at women's working lives now and in the past. All of the themes explored in this series can be found in my book, Normal Women, 900 Years of Making History. And if you've enjoyed this episode... Please tell the normal women in your life about it. Hope you'll be joining me soon. Normal Women, 900 Years of Making History, published by William Collins, is also available as an audiobook. There are links to both in the show notes. The Normal Women podcast was written and presented by me, Philippa Gregory, and features the voice talents of Claire Corbett, James Good, Melanie Gutteridge and Rufus Wright and includes original music composed by Juliet Pochin. The producer is Julia Johnson. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design is by Tom Birchall. The commissioning editor for William Collins is Arabella Pike. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 